0: Now, if I can figure out how to get attention. How does How does Sean get attention of the clouds? Does he whistle? Or did he yells. He speak loud. <laughs> John John's going to go ahead and open us in prayer. We're actually okay. So If we can get, yeah, we can get Jim to be quiet back there. Jim. Quiet. <laughs> Good job. Okay. We go. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to come here and study your word. Lord, sometimes we don't understand you and the things that you're trying to tell us. Give us insight, into the things that we need to know about you and about things in our lives that we need to change. Just guide and direct our lives, Lord, wherever we go and whatever it whatever we say and whatever we listen to. God, sometimes it's kind of hard to keep going. So just be with us and keep trying. In your name, Amen. 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 Well, the last couple weeks you've had Sean talking about covenant, correct? I I know it's on the... uh, the website that you can download, but I have been remiss in my homework, and so I haven't had the chance to listen to what Sean had to say. Uh, I'd like to do a little bit of a recap. Where we're at this morning is we're going to take a look at 2 Samuel, uh, the first chapter, and I want to kind of recap what uh, Sean was uh, covering and where we were in First Samuel as we jump into Second Samuel. But as is my custom, I thought we'd start with the psalm. Uh, take a look at Psalm 62. Psalm 62. Who would like to read out Psalm 62 for us? Volunteers, Mike. Mike, you read it. Okay. Uh, my soul waits in silence for God. For God only. For Him. For Him is my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long? How long will you assail, a man? That you may murder him, all of you, like a learned, uh, like a, like a leaning wall, like a towering fence. They have counseled only to. Trust him him down from his high position. (laughs) They delight in falsehood. They uh, bless with their mouth, but outwardly they they curse. Uh, My soul wait, uh, my soul, wait in silence for God alone. For my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. My God, my salvation on God, God, my salvation, my glory rests. My, the rock of my, of my strength, my refuge, is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Men of low degree are only, are only vanity, and men of rank are alive. In balance, they, they go up. They, they are together lighter than, than breath. Do not trust in opposition, and do not vainly hope in robbery. Riches increase. Do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken twice, I have heard this: that power belongs to God, and loving kindness is thine, O Lord. For Thou dost recompense a man according to his work. Amen. So, what this psalm is about, um, you capture in the first the first line. My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. And it ends with a declaration about who God is. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, or in the NIV it says that strength belongs to God, and loving kindness is yours, O Lord. For you recompense a man according to his work. So, we've been looking at uh, 1 Samuel. Who can give me a brief summary of what 1 Samuel has been about so far? Anybody? Been a few weeks. Where does 1 Samuel start? It's about a prophet, a priest, and a king, Right? So, in 1 Samuel, we start out with the introduction of who Samuel is. Who is Samuel? He's a child of the Pardon? He's Hannah's child. He's Hannah's child. And he is a a protege or somebody learning from the priest Eli. Yep. And uh, Hannah... Didn't have children, she asked for a child, God mm-hmm. gave her a child, and she gave him back to God. Yep. Mm-hmm. So Samuel was an answer to prayer yes. and um, as a result of this faithful woman and her uh, dedication to the Lord, she took God's prayer and basically gave it back to him. God's answer to prayer. And so Samuel was set aside from before birth to be God's spokesman so he was a very powerful and famous prophet partially because of the story of how he became a prophet but also because he was faithful to speak what God asked him to speak even when it was really hard and it was a very difficult time in the history of the uh, nation of Israel they hadn't become a nation yet they had come out of captivity in Egypt They had gone through a time of the judges where God was their king, and they had judges uh, among them that would rightly divide the truth for them and make judgments. But what ended up happening was that people forgot about God and did what was right in their own eyes. That's where the judges end. And God intended that people would have uh, not just him as, as king in heaven, but him as king on earth. And that he would do that through a delegate in this period of time. So since the judges weren't doing their job, uh, what happened is, is there was a transitionary period to the time of the kings. And that's where Samuel takes place. It's in this transitionary time where God is still king in heaven among his people, but his delegates are, the role of the delegate is changing from judge to that of king. So, what is the responsibility of a king? A little bit different than the responsibility of a judge. Does anybody remember what the responsibility of a king is? Protect, provide, protect, and serve. Provide. Protect, provide, and serve. Yep.
1: And Go I always ahead
0: of the pardon. Go out ahead. Of the Go out ahead, and that would be the whole idea of, of all three: providing, protecting, and serving. Uh, is that as the king, he would be out front. He would be uh, representing God to the people just as the the priests are intercessors and the prophet stands between God and the people. The king would also have that same role. But his role would be more as one of a leader that he would be out front. And that's a very significant role. We see that the judges from time to time had that role. But it was uh, for special occasions when there was a particular enemy of Israel. They didn't really have a leader that would lead in the way that a king does in the times of peace. So we think of some of the judges that were very famous for different battles, but the king was intended to lead always, to always be present with them in that role. So we see that Samuel came as prophet, and interestingly, in this time of transition, his uh, his role as a judge was diminished. And in fact, his children brought out a cry among the people to have a king because his children were not just. And so when they were serving as judges, they didn't do a good job. In fact, they would take for themselves and not provide, protect, and serve. So the people cried out for a king. And you recall the, the story in, in Samuel, Samuel was greatly offended by that because he thought that the people were pushing back against his leadership through the office of prophet if you think of it as an office but in reality God said no it's not you or that administration that I've set up through the priesthood and the prophets that they're rebelling against they're rebelling rebelling against me as king but I'll give them a king and this is what's going to happen and he told them how the king rather than providing for them the people would provide for the king and rather than protecting them the people would end up protecting the king. So the king wouldn't be out front, he'd be in back. Uh, And rather than uh, serving the people, the people would serve the king. They would actually become his servants and be indebted to him. And he said, but if that's what you want, here you go. And so the people selected a king, and God anointed him as a... uh, trying to think of the right word here. I can think of it in Hebrew. It's uh, a commander. Is that the word that I used when I was teaching through that? As opposed to Melech king, it was Prince. prince. Correct. And the idea there is that he would be, like in the time of the judges, he would be one that would lead against the enemies of God's people. But he was the protege of the king. So the idea is is that he would be a type of the the true king that would come. And that's why uh, the word is is translated prince a lot of times. Because the prince is the one that's going to become king. Well that was Saul. Saul was selected among the people. They saw that he was a foot taller than everybody which was pretty distinguished in that period of time. He came from a, a wealthy family. And Coming from a wealthy family and being very handsome and distinguished, they thought this is the guy. It's interesting. Uh, side note: I don't know if this is a side note or not, but my uh, my boss at work <coughs> has this theory that the best-looking person is elected president, <laughs> <laughs> right? Pardon? Or <laughs> like, or tallest? Or tallest. Mm-hmm. And so he bases this on recent history and. The prevalence of media in selecting people for public office today, and when you go back in time, uh, before you know they could broadcast your face and your stature all over the internet and television and that kind of stuff. People weren't selected based on how they looked because nobody knew how they looked, you know, unless they happened to be local with the guy. But today, you see that people select that way. They they look at the outward appearance. And they make a judgment. We sit in judgment and we select a person based on what's on the outside. And we don't look at what's going on on the inside. It's very hard to look at what's going on on the inside today because uh, we talk about spin in media and they try and project what's going on on the inside but really it's all about building that outside facade. And that's actually how Saul got selected among the people as king. Right? He... It was a small community at that time, so people could look at him, and they could say, here's this Benjamite, and, and Benjamin was a favored tribe. They had a, a particular place in the land that was strategic, and I'll go ahead and bring it up here. So if we uh, zoom in just a little bit here, so that's what, what you're seeing here. Is you've got the Sinai Peninsula. You've got Egypt over here. You've got this little strip of land right here that was Israel, and so when the Egyptians came, or the Israelis came out, they came down through the the wilderness and then up actually over here and then into the Promised Land. Where they came into the Promised Land is this area of the Benjamin Plateau. So the tribe of Benjamin was actually given that strategic location, and that made Saul even more attractive as uh-huh. a ha. <clears throat> <clears throat> Michael, uh, I forgot my Bible this morning. All my notes are in, it, so I'm just shooting from the hip here. Uh, not actually. I had a few notes. Let me give. Them. Okay, there we go. Just take two seconds here to get organized. Okay, there we go. How can you go anywhere without your Bible? Well, it happens. <laughs> So Saul was selected because he was a man in a strategic position, in a strategic land, uh, and from a strategic family, and so the people said, make him king. And God said, okay, we'll anoint this one as king. But he was more interested in what was going on on the inside than what was going on on the outside, God is. And so he said that he was, when Saul disqualified himself through disobedience, because Saul had an opportunity even though he came from this place of privilege, he had an opportunity to be uh, schooled in God's character school and to respond favorably to what God was asking him to do. And that we understand that that takes place through obedience. God reveals his will to us and he does that through the prophet and the priest and the king. And... In revealing himself to us, we have the opportunity to respond. Well, Saul had that same opportunity, and in fact, he started out well, and he went uh, initially to this area called. Uh, now I did it. <laughs> yeah, tell you, this is this is a great day. So he went initially to a place up here called Jabesh Gilead, which is up in. Um, kind of a high plateau area. It's a fertile area where they have cattle and that kind of stuff in this area. Oh, there it goes. And he came from this area in the Benjamin Plateau and he heard that the um, Jabesh Gilead folks were being oppressed by the Ammonites. So the Ammonites were the tribes up here, kind of a little bit further up in that direction. And they were coming against Jabesh Gilead and saw as the prince being schooled by God in his character school, had just a passion for God's people. He said, I'm going to go rescue those Jabesh Gileadites. And he goes up here and he actually uh, saves them from the Ammonites. So Saul started out well. But there's a little bit more to that story, if you recall, when we went through that, that Saul um, being from Benjamin, in the Benjamin plateau here, see if we can zoom in a little bit. Uh, okay so Saul is from Jerusalem from Gibeon here and if you go back through your history you find out that the Gibeonites um, were associated with these folks from Jabesh Gilead and this was a result of a strategic alliance that Joshua made when he entered into the land he got tricked and he made an alliance with these people rather than wiping them out he allowed them to stay as the servants of the Hebrew peoples. And they ended up in this area of Gibeon. And then some of them went went to this area up in Ammon, to Jabesh-Gilead. And so there was an association between the Jabesh-Gileadites and the Gibeonites, Saul's tribe, Saul's family. And so when Saul went up there, he wasn't just being obedient, he was also being somewhat self-serving. But you have to know your history to find out that, oh, perhaps Saul had an, a, another motive. Maybe he wasn't quite as pure in following the lead of the Lord as we would think. But he certainly demonstrated the kind of character that you would expect from one that was king. But that's the one example where he actually obeyed. What we saw as we went through 1 Samuel is that Saul uh, in, repeatedly disobeyed. And he did that by chasing David all around when God said, you know, I told you to wipe out the Amalekites, your enemies down here in the south. And he didn't do it. Instead, he captured their king and paraded him around to show how great he was, how great Saul was. Yeah, I got the Amalekite king. And uh, Samuel came and confronted him on that. And he said, you know, God told you to do this. And he said, well, I did. I went and captured the Amalekites. He said, no, God didn't say capture them. He said, don't leave anything left. These are your enemies. These are people that are like a cancer. They're gonna destroy you. And we find out that as a result of Saul's disobedience, later on in history, those same peoples rise up against the, the Hebrews in Persia. So this happens hundreds of years later, um, that the the seed that was left on the ground of the Amalekites ends up coming back to destroy all of the Hebrew peoples in Persia. And that's the story of Esther, right? So God knew what, how disastrous a result of leaving these people in the land would be. And so his command to Saul was, I want you to protect my people. Do what I say. And Saul didn't do it. And Samuel said, how come? And then what did Saul do? He was doing the look good thing, right? He says, well... It wasn't me it was the people i'm just listening to you know being a good servant of the people and samuel said no that's not it at all in fact that disobedience disqualifies you from being god's chosen uh, king not that saul couldn't continue to serve the lord but the lord realized this guy needs more schooling i need someone that is after my heart and so he chose one who we understand is david david when Saul found out that he was anointed king by Samuel Saul chased him around all over the country he chased him first, uh, he chased him to where Samuel was this is a a terrible picture for me to look at here, but he went to Samuel's home looking for him and then he chased him all the way around through Philistine territory all the way around through the hill country down here, um, all the way around To the edge of the Dead Sea and Saul was continuing to send out his strike force, his best marines to track down David and kill him because David because he was the king of promise meant that Saul was not going to continue as king and that his children wouldn't continue as king but he thought as a man would if I take him out I can continue my dynasty my kingship and that didn't happen because that's where 1 Samuel ends. We find out that David, as he's going through God's character university, and he's being tried and tested and molded, we see that David even though he makes mistakes he falls flat on his face sometimes, but he's falling forward. When God speaks to him he hears When God corrects him he learns So David Is actually what you see is when he gets into these tight spots, what Saul does when he gets into a tight spot is he calls out the Marines. He says, I need to be protected, I need to be served, I need to be provided for, therefore, let's call out the Marines and have them provide that service for me and keep me safe. And let's have them go take out David. Right? What David did is he sought out the will of the Lord. He sought out the word of the Lord. He sought it out through the prophets. He sought it out through the priests. And finally, he sought it out through a direct communion with God. And we saw that as he had to make some very tough decisions. David ended up down here. Oh, there it is again. Uh, He ended up down here in Gath, which is the city of Goliath. Uh, So Goliath was was a big man, literally, in Gath. And David took him out at a a battle very early in his life here in Ezekiel, very close to Gath. And actually, it was Elah, this valley that runs right down here uh, by Ezekiel. And that's where the the battle of David and Goliath was fought. And we understand that as a battle. Actually, for David, it was a very short uh, episode. Uh, For the Hebrew peoples, it was a very big victory because... When David demonstrated what God was doing for the people, all the people got excited and they chased them all the way down this valley, all the way back to Gath and actually up to some of their other cities too, Ekron and they, so they the, the Hebrew children then at that point got excited about what God was doing and that was attributed to Saul's leadership, if you recall, and, but David was becoming a great warrior and Saul got jealous and that, that's what kind of kicked off this whole thing Well, David, as he's running from Saul, he realizes he can't be safe anywhere from Saul's reach unless he's in the enemy's hands. So he actually makes an alliance with the king of Gath. And the king is pleased with David because David's a man of good character. So the king gives him, the king of Gath, uh, Philistine, gives him the city of Ziklag down here. Ziklag... uh, was originally promised to the tribe of Judah. And when Joshua came into the land and they had a conquest of this area, they never did take Ziklag. So until David, even though it was promised to the Jewish peoples, they never took it. But it was given to them by their enemy. By the king of Gath. David then took that community and made that his home base and in the final throws, when Saul is at the last of his days uh, the I'll zoom out just a little bit the Philistines muster their army there we go the Philistines muster their army they take from their five cities Gaza, uh, Ashkelon, Ashdod Ekron and Gath so that's their pentapolis there and this is their primary area of security and wealth They marched up to the area of Apek, which is where they had defeated the Hebrew (coughs) children before. They mustered their army there, and then they continued north through this valley here, probably came out uh, either just to the east of uh, Mount Carmel here, or came out of Megiddo. And then they marched across, this is the Jezreel Valley here, they marched across and they ended up on this hill right here and Saul and his army came across the patriarchal highway and popped out here and ended up on Mount Gilboa. And that's where the final battle took place. At this point in time, Israel became a captive again of, uh, in this case, Philistines. And they lost. They lost that battle and Saul was killed and they took Saul and his sons, he had sons there with him in battle, and when they found their dead bodies they took them and nailed them on the wall of a, cha- a place called Bethshan, which is right there it's and so they took them from Mount Gilboa and they nailed them to the wall as the Philistines did as a way of saying hey our God is bigger than your God we're greater than you are and they subjugated all of Israel at that point the Philistines did David was invited to that battle from Ziklag here, and he actually marched with the king of Gath up to Aphek and said, I want to be part of this battle. He was on the wrong side. He was on the Philistine side. But the Lord knew his heart that David was going to be faithful and loyal wherever God had put him. And he didn't want to compromise David's leadership of the future nation of Israel. So God took the influence of these other uh, four kings here to convince the king of Gath that no, we don't want him with us. He was an ally of Saul. So they sent David back to Ziklag. And if you recall, in Ziklag, what happened was David got back there. So David got back to, to Ziklag down here. And when he got there, he found out that the Amalekites, who Saul was originally supposed to wipe out, right, had come and raided and taken wives and children and animals and basically left the town a ruin. So they came in, had a big party, took all the, all the wives and kids and left. David mustered his men after a march all the way back from Aphek to Ziklag. He gets there. They're all tired. And he says, we're going to do something about this. Let's go get our people. So he comes and he crosses here at the, the Brook Besor and he chases the Amalekites down here and he actually destroys all but 400 of them that get away. Some young Amalekite boys on camels go shooting off into the desert down here and he, they, so they escape. So the Amalekites aren't wiped out but at that time David does what Saul was supposed to do and he brings back the people to Ziklag unharmed and restores that city Not only that, but he takes the booty from the battle and he distributes it among those that he knows. That's where our story takes off. Is that David had been down here in Ziklag. He had just returned from uh, restoring the people, fighting the Amalekites. Saul was up in the north. He had just been killed at Mount Gilboa. Him and his sons, Jonathan, uh, David's good, good friend, was killed in that battle as well, and they were tacked onto the wall of Beit Shan. And from Beit Shan, these Jabesh Gileadites came and rescued the body of Saul and Jonathan. And they took him to Jabesh Gilead and gave him a proper burial. So Saul did get a proper well, they were cremated, but so that would not be the way they would normally do it. But that was I mean he, he wasn't totally dishonored in his death. He wasn't left nailed to a wall. Because that was a great dishonor. These bodies were headless. Yeah. Yes, they were beheaded. That's a very important part. <clears throat> it's a very important part because that declares who's who's king, mm-hmm. right? In the the way of the world, when you take somebody's head, um, you've taken all of their power and authority, right? Mm-hmm. And that demonstrates that you're greater than they are, that you're more powerful. What did David learn? Well, we read it this morning. We read it in Psalm 62. See, there is a method to my madness. We looked at Psalm 62, and this is, this is a psalm of David. This is what David said. Once God has spoken, in other words, he got it the first time, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. It doesn't belong to the guy who took the head. It's all according to God's plan and God's purpose. And this is what David had been learning in his wanderings. That even when he was going through the ringer, what that was about was about God executing his plan to save his people. And David recognized that he could, through being a servant, could participate in God's plan. That's what the king is supposed to do. And so that's why his heart was a heart after God's heart. It doesn't mean that he was perfect and without sin. Not at all. In fact, we're going to find out, not only have we seen the sins of David in the past, we're going to see some real grievous sins in the future. But David, when he's confronted with the righteousness of God, continues to turn to God and to seek him, and takes whatever God gives at his hand. Because this he knows, that power belongs to God, and loving kindness is yours. For you recompense a man according to his work We could totally spend a whole bunch of time unpacking that, but what we're going to see is how that unpacks itself as we move through 2 Samuel. That's the stage for where we are this morning. Chapter 30 of 1 Samuel ends in David restoring Ziklag. Chapter 31 ends in the death of Saul and the Jehosh Gileadites. Let's go ahead and read through the first chapter uh, 2 Samuel and just as an aside that what uh, Sean has been teaching on the last couple weeks covenant, we're going to come to that in chapter 7 what we call the Davidic covenant and you're going to see that that runs all the way through here as a major theme so what you've learned in covenant we're going to continue to revisit and you're going to see that more explored But let's go ahead and take a look at David's response to world events at the time. It says, now it came about after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. So David got back, he he fought the battle, took his men back to the Berukesor, and if you recall there, some of them were so tired when they were coming in that they had to stop there. David made a decree about generosity, and that this would be the way of the people, that they would be generous to all, not just those that actually had uh, fought in the battle. They ended up back here at Ziklag. So this was an incredible march from Aphek down here fighting a battle all the way back to Ziklag. They'd only been there two days. In the meantime, we know that there was this whole battle going up in the north. So David had been there two days, and on the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, from where do you come? He said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Remember, David was actually invited initially by the king of Gath to this battle. So he wants to know, what's the outcome? What's God doing? Please tell me, he said, the people have fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are also dead. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite, the very enemies of the people. Then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me, because my life still lingers in me. So I uh, I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown, which was on his head, and the bracelet, which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. So also did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. Then David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said go cut him down so he struck him and he died. David said to him your blood is on your head for your your mouth has testified against you saying i have killed the lord's anointed. Then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan his son and he told them to teach the sons of judah the song of the bow. Behold it is written in the book of jashar. Your beauty o israel is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, the daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. On mountains of Gilboa, let not do or rain beyond you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life and in their death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more than wonderful. Uh, was more wonderful than the love of women how have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished so what's happening here who can tell me so I took the story up to this point what just happened you guys are shy this morning pardon pardon God's prophecy about Saul, losing his kingdom, and his sons came true. Yep. Uh, so God's prophecy came true about Saul and his sons. And we understand then that David must have been reassured that the prophecy concerning him would also be fulfilled. Now didn't Saul kill himself? On a sword, so good much, catch. But, um, good say, catch. seems oh, like he, he was a re- get a reward or something because yeah. David surely hated him. Yeah, good catch. So when we look at chapter 31, just right before this, we see what the, the, uh, the narrator has told us what really happened. David doesn't know this. Remember, he's been out in battle and he just got back. And I don't know about you guys, but when I've been out in battle like that and I come back, I need two days of sleep just to catch up. And so I can imagine David is, you know, trying to recoup, has no idea what's happened. He says, this guy comes in, he says, tell me, what's the scoop? Tell me what's going on. So he doesn't know, but we know. The narrator uh, intentionally positioned this story right where it is. Because this isn't just a transition of the throne. This is a statement about... People's character. So in chapter 31, we see that Saul, in the heat of battle, is wounded by the archer. And in this wounded condition, he knows that he's not going to prevail, that Israel is going to fall. So he asks his uh, bodyguard to kill him. And his bodyguard says, No way, I'm not going to kill the Lord's anointed. So Saul takes his own sword. And he falls on it. Now what this Amalekite says is a little bit different story. right? He says, well, Saul had fallen on his spear and was not dead. Well, when you go and you look at chapter 31, when Saul committed suicide, fell on his sword, his bodyguard sees that he's dead. And his job is to protect the king, and he's failed in his primary job. So he kills himself. So the bodyguard verified that Saul was dead before anybody else showed up. And as a result of that, took his own life. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if my job was to protect somebody and if I couldn't do it, that my life would be forfeit because that's what was happening. The bodyguard's life was forfeit as a result of the king dying. So he had to die too. Nobody was around at that point to verify that now if I was that bodyguard I'd make darn sure that Saul was dead because his life was not forfeit until Saul had actually died but this Amalekite comes in and says no Saul wasn't really dead and there wasn't any around him you know there was many slain but but, uh, Saul was still alive and he was actually on the run is what he says but he was mortally wounded and so he asks this Amalekite to kill him because the guy admitted he was an Amalekite right and would, would Saul really do that so this Amalekite spinning the yarn and he's probably doing that because he wants some advantage what did he bring he brought the crown and the, and the bracelet which are the signs of royalty the crown doesn't make the king but the king wears the crown Right? So he comes to the one who is an enemy, but he comes bearing a promise of power. And that's what he brings. He brings the crown. He says, Here's the, you know, Saul was slain. I know he was your enemy. He chased you. You actually uh, aligned yourself with the Philistines, so you must be safe. Here you go. Here's Saul's crown. Now, what are you going to do for me? And so David inquires further. He says, what's this? And he finds out the guy's an Amalekite. What was the command of God about the Amalekites? He'd wipe them out. So David does what God had told the king of Israel to do. He kills the Amalekite. Now you might say, well, this just seems pretty brutal. I mean, the guy comes to him. And at this point, he's come into the camp, so he's going to be stripped of all of his arms and all of that. But David says, kill him, because God said to do that. And so that's what happens. The enemy of the Lord, who, trying to get advantage and manipulate, ends up having the whole thing backfire on him. That's what we see in Psalm 62. The person is recompensed for their work. What that means is that God knows what his plan is. You're not going to trick him into thinking that something else is supposed to happen. He knows how history is supposed to unwind. He knows what his plan is in the large for all of humanity and for us individually. And we have an opportunity to participate with him or to push back against him and make our own story. And that's what this Amalekite was doing. He was pushing back and saying, I have this, this other story. This is my story. And David knew what the story of God was. And he said, we're going to execute God's story, not your story. That's what's happening here. And then David has a, a response because he knows that Saul has fallen because you don't end up with Saul's crown unless Saul is fallen. Right? Right? So what's David's response to all this? I mean, he takes out the Amalekite, but what's his additional response? Morning. 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 He grieves. And that's exactly what we see here. He, he grieves and all of his men grieve. Now you've got to remember, his men were with him when Saul was chasing him. So, they probably are wondering, number one, what David's up to letting Saul go free when he had multiple opportunities two very clear ones to take Saul out when Saul was his enemy and yet David was always choosing what God said was right and what God said was good so God had appointed Saul to protect the people and as long as Saul was still in that position David was going to honor that even to his own detriment his men saw that and said, are you crazy? What are you doing? And David said, look, this is what God is up to. This is what he's teaching me. You have an opportunity. If you're going to follow me, you're going to follow God. And so his men learned from him in his leadership what it meant to be faithful. and What it meant to be a man after God's heart. That's what David was teaching his men. What he was learning. And that's what we do as Christians. As disciples, we disciple others. I don't know if you knew that or not, but everybody in here, the reason you showed up today is because you wanted to learn something, right? What you're learning, you teach. You teach by the way that you live. And that's what David's doing. He's teaching by the way that he lives. And his men share the very grief that he has over the broken heart of God. Broke God's heart was broken over Saul. We, we think, well, Saul you know, totally thumbed his nose at God. He went and did the most vile thing that he could do. He went to a witch to have his future discerned so that he could continue to execute his own plan. And that, we find out, is one of the most offensive things that you can do. You know, when you look through the the law of God, uh, and I will, t- I will tell you that the law of God is the same as the will of God. So when you see the declaration of the law in the first five books of the Bible what that is is it's a description a declaration of who God is and what his heart is and what his will is and what his plan is he's revealing himself to us right and David is aligning himself with the will of God with the law of God (coughs) Now I lost my point. <laughs> Did we ever get there? What was I saying? I was talking about David's grief and God's grief over Saul. Saul um, had violated God's will. David had kept God's will. That's the distinction, the major distinction that we're to draw in 1 Samuel, is that these two are characterized, one as following the will of God and one as totally following their own will. Blessings and cursings, yes. Those that follow the law and those that reject. Right. And it isn't it isn't because the law is prescriptive, that the law is a bunch of check marks that you need to get so that when you present yourself before God or you are presented before God, we don't actually bring ourselves to God, we find ourselves there because He brought us. Uh, when you come to the face of God, you can bring your own righteousness You can bring your own list of check marks that you put on the page saying, see, I kept this one, and I kept that one, and I kept this one here, right? That would be a prescriptive law. If God gave you a list of things to do, a prescription, for how you could become worthy in his presence, that would be a prescriptive law. But what we find in the Bible is not a prescriptive law, but a descriptive law. It describes what the heart of God is, what his will is who he is, that he is righteousness, that he is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that's what the law is about. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Right? And that idea of of the law and obedience to the law results in what we understand in covenant, because Sean's been talking about covenant, the the four aspects of covenant are relationship, the definition of who's participating in the covenant is relationship, the promise, that there's a promise uh, associated with a covenant, then there are terms of the covenant, what it means to obey within that contract or covenant, and then there are the uh, performance uh, rewards, Or performance declarations, which we call blessings and cursings. You find that in all kinds of covenants, which is a form of law today. I don't know if you realize that. But when you get a mortgage on a house, you have a relationship between you and the holder of that note. What is the note? It's called a promissory note. I don't know if you know, when you signed your mortgage, and that stack of documents is thick. right at the top of that was a promissory note. And then attached to that promise, so you have a relationship, you and the lender, you have a promise, they're going to give you X number of dollars, then there are the terms. And for that X number of dollars, they're going to hold your house, your wife, your kids, your car. (laughs) You have the terms of the covenant. And then you have the performance. The performance being, if you fail to put your payment in on time, you will pay a late payment. If you have X number of late payments, um, you're going to get dinged. If you don't pay at all, we're going to take it back, right? And all of that is spelled out. The cursings and the blessings. That's what you get when you get a mortgage, right? It's the same idea here, this idea of cursings and blessings. And what Saul did was he disregarded the will of God. And that disregard, we would say, is disobedience to the law. The very command of God. The terms are commands. So that's why we call it the Ten Commandments and the law. And that's what Saul did. He, in place of God's will, he put his own. But God said, you know, you can't violate the covenant. This covenant is binding. And when you violate the covenant, you get the performance consequence. The blessings and the cursings. Saul got the cursings. And David saw that Saul got the cursings to the point of death. That that's what disobedience leads to. And I will tell you that God is grieved when he sees that the covenant is broken. Because he knows what the performance requirements of the covenant are. And he doesn't desire that anyone would die. And he says that in Ezekiel chapter 18. He says, it is, God grieves The death of every single person. Because death is a result of sin. And that grieves God's heart. And David, a man after God's heart, joins him in his grief. And he writes out a lament. So he expresses his grief. So he's telling us something about, okay, if grief is a normal part of participating in the life of God, grief and loss, because there's the loss of Saul, there's the loss of Jonathan, then we need to learn how we handle grief and loss. Because this is, if God's heart is grieved and we participate with Him, we have the same grief in our heart, we have a couple of choices. What are the typical responses to loss by the world? How does the world respond to loss and grief? Denial. Denial. Anger. Anger. Blaine. Mm-hmm. Keep going. <laughs> Depression. Depression. <laughs> Depression. Also, it depends on who died. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you <laughs> should be happy about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I suppose that could be the case, especially we if it was an oppressive type situation. It yeah. depends upon the loss, whether it's death or some other kind of law. Because right. there are real losses of life yes. that don't have to do with that. Uh, yes. A, yes. A We're going to recover that which was taken from yeah. us, mm-hmm. one way or another. We're going to require blood. Whether that's, you know, somebody stole your car and you want them to return fourfold, so you want four cars. <laughs> <laughs> can't can't fit it in your garage. But, seems but <laughs> like in <laughs> yeah. It seems like grief only occurs when there's something infested. Uh, like and instance, in and that's some why. For instance, that you don't know, you're not necessarily I mean, You may be somewhat grieved, but you're not usually moving your apartment because you're not invested. Yeah. So it seems like right. the more that you're invested in God, the harder you will actually grieve over how that's That is. that's right. So and I I recognize this to be true in my life. When I get up in the morning, I'm immediately faced with the evil in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I happen to work in downtown Portland. Mm -hmm. And for me to walk into my building, I'm walking past the results of that evil played out in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we recognize it as, well, I don't want to go there. I'll walk on the other side of the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. Or we fear for our safety. Right? Those are all the results of seeing the evil in the world. Now, I don't fear for my safety because the Lord's got his hand on me. And he tells me that. Right? Don't, don't worry about someone taking your life, your physical life. Um, so I don't fear, but I grieve. Because I see that that's the state of the world. And that was the message uh, from God to Jonah. He said, don't you realize that there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that are lost here? And my heart is for them. Jonah didn't have that heart, but David did, interestingly. And that's what we are to learn from this. When you feel grief, you can deny it, which is to trivialize it, or to empty it from meaning, so that was denial. right? Denial is not an appropriate response to grief, even though we do it because we need to shield ourselves and protect ourselves from the emotional distress associated. So we understand that denial is one of the first things you do, one of the first walls you put up. David doesn't deny it, because to deny it is to trivialize it, or to empty it of meaning. He recognizes that Saul was lost, that Jonathan was lost, and that that was God's plan for his protection for his people. Now, God had a greater plan, but these people were participating in what God had ordained, and he recognized the loss, and he didn't deny it. He also didn't distract. So he faced it head on. He didn't try to devalue it. He didn't try to remove it or remove its strength. And he didn't try to disconnect from it. Instead, he wrote to lament. And you'll see in this lament, he says three times, three times, how have the mighty fallen? So he attributes to Saul something that the people wouldn't attribute to Saul. Because he recognizes the mighty plan of God, the power of God, in working to redeem his people and the failure through disobedience of this man, how the mighty have fallen. And it grieves his heart, and he says it three times. That's what this lament is about. He says, Not only that, but I want you to teach this. I want you to teach it to everybody so that they can grieve too. He wants us to grieve and not deny it. Where have we had time? Well, right at the end. <clears throat> I will uh, read the first seven verses of the next chapter for setting the, the framework so David when confronted with the truth about where he stood in God's plan what happened with Saul he, he sees the fulfilling of God's plan he participates in the fulfilling of God's plan through battling the Amalekites And then we read in chapter 2, then it came about afterwards, that David inquired of the Lord, it's David's heart, what does God think about this? Saying, shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. So David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. And my computer went off, I won't go there, we'll look at that next week. But Hebron is right in the middle of the hill country, it's right in the heart of Judah. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord, because you have shown this kindness to Saul, your Lord, and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I also will show this goodness to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So this is where we're going to leave off, and I'll let you ponder this week whether this is a compassionate response of the heart of God displayed by, by David or whether this is a political ploy to gain strength. Now he's like, okay, now I can actually sit on the throne. What's the first thing I want to do? Let's secure an ally. So those are the two choices that we have in interpreting this passage. Um, probably other choices too, but those are the two we're going to look at. Why don't we go ahead and close here in prayer. I guess before we do that, does anybody have questions on, I mean I tend to get up here and talk a lot. Today was one of those days where y'all didn't get enough coffee or something so there wasn't a lot of participation back. But does this make sense, what you see happening in the life of David and how this is the heart of God and how he actually has a message here for us that this isn't just a distant story. This is something that we see every day. And God has called us, similar to calling David. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you what you're teaching us through the life of Saul, the life of Eli, the life of Samuel, the life of David. Uh, Lord, we understand that uh, as we see now the ascent of David to king of Israel and the greatest king, one that they still honor today, we're also going to find out very keen lessons about how we are to walk with you and how we are to be disciples and lord help us to take those messages to heart help us to truly flesh them out and to seek them out in your word speak to us through your holy spirit and teach us and instruct us lord in your way and your truth and lord I just ask a blessing on these people here today that they've uh, taken out time this morning uh, to come and to, to study your word Lord, I just ask that you would bless them, that you would protect them, that you would keep them and provide for them. Lord, uh, you've served us so graciously and with such great love. Help us to truly be affected by that and be and changed that we can love as you love. Lord, we, uh, we ask this morning that you would be with uh, Dr. Borer as he shares a message with us again this week, uh, that you would uh, empower him with your spirit, Uh, touch our hearts that we would hear touch his lips that he would speak faithfully that which you called him to do lord we just ask that uh, you would keep us and allow us to return next week unless you return in which case we'll learn from you directly lord we uh, we thank you for this and help us truly to endure this day and the next as you've given them to us thank you lord jesus we ask this in your name